The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Okay, let's go now to God's Word. We are in the book of Acts, Acts 25. Uh, I'm Pastor Cliff, pastor-teacher and one of the elders here at Grace Bible Fellowship, uh, and just want to welcome any visitors that we might have today, and I think we do. So we thank God that you're here. We pray that your time is blessed with us. And now this is the time where we go to God's word in the Bible because we believe God is a living God. He actually speaks to his people. He speaks to everyone and primarily does that through his word, through the scriptures today, through the Holy Spirit of God and through the scriptures is where we see God speak. What's his mind is literally revealed on these pages. And the book of Acts is a historical account of how the church began how it was established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then Jesus went off into heaven and entrusted starting the church to his 12 apostles who were very faithful, very sacrificial. They received God's blessing. And then the church, early church began. It exploded with God's blessing starting in Jerusalem and then began to spread out to closer areas and then eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth, of the then known world back in the Roman Empire. And Luke writes uh, the book of Acts 2,000 years ago at about 60, mid-60s is when he finally put this whole account together that we call the book of Acts. He wrote it in Greek, probably on a very long manuscript, possibly made out of parchment or leaves or whatever, dried out, and it has been preserved graciously by God. And it's a true historical account of how Jesus started the church in about 30 A.D., And then Acts goes 28 chapters in your English Bible and traces the apostles' ministry, the 12 apostles, for the first 12 chapters. And then the rest of the book from 13 to 28 is really zeroing in on the Apostle Paul's ministry, his unique ministry to the Gentiles of the world. And so that's where we have been. And so we've been watching the Apostle Paul's ministry that now has extended more than two decades. Currently right now in Acts, just to give you some context, Acts 25 is where we are. Uh, the time is about 59 A.D., so this is a good 25-plus years after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's a good 20 years after Paul got saved. He's put in three amazing, very long, arduous, fruitful missionary journeys where he planted churches all over the Gentile world and the Roman Empire. Came back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. Went to the temple in Jerusalem to worship was falsely accused there in, op- in the open, and a mob surrounded him, and they tried to put him to death right there on the spot in the temple, midday. And what was his crime? Well, his crime was, they said it was that he was defiling the temple by bringing unclean Gentile people into parts of the, the temple where non-Jews were not allowed to go. But that was not true. Paul didn't do that. So it was a false accusation. His crime was that he was a follower of Jesus, the Nazarene. That's really his crime. And the ones that instituted this mob violence against Paul in the middle of the temple in midday, they were the Jewish leadership of the the Jews there in Israel who lived in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, known as the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They had heard of Jesus. They didn't believe the message. They rejected Christ. They claimed to be, believe in the Old Testament. They claimed to believe in Yahweh. Yet they despised this idea of Jesus as the Messiah. And they hated Paul for it. And that's why they turned on the Apostle Paul. And no doubt some of these 
in the Jewish leadership, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, no doubt they had heard of this Jesus before, and maybe some of them were even involved the first time around when they had Jesus murdered, executed, saying he was a blasphemer and a false prophet. And so that's why Paul is being resisted, and that's why he got beat up. That's eventually why he got arrested, and so that's where we are. The end of Paul's ministry, it's nearing the twilight of his ministry He's probably, he could be in his 60s at this point, late 50s. But we do know it's about 59 A.D., Acts chapter 25. And the Apostle Paul, so he got beat up there in the temple, and then the Romans came and intervened, and then they rescued him, but at the same time they arrested him, and they locked him up in shackles and threw him in prison. And then a Roman commander grilled him, trying to find out who he is, and it turns out, Finds out Paul's a Roman citizen who has rights, so that Roman commander didn't know what to do with him. So he took him to the Sanhedrin, the Jews, to have a trial. That didn't work. The Pharisees declared him not guilty in that mini-trial. So then the Roman commander ushered him off to Roman headquarters, 60 miles, going north to the coast in Caesarea. And that's where the Roman governor was. And the Roman governor had authority over Jerusalem, over the Jews, and even over that Roman commander. And so he just got rid of him. I can't. I don't know what to do with this Paul guy. And so he gave him to the Roman governor there, Felix. And Felix had a trial, and the Jews came up and accused Paul, false charges, lies. Paul said, "I didn't do any of that. There was no evidence." So Felix, the governor, didn't know what to do. So he didn't make a pronouncement of a verdict, but to appease the Jews who hated Paul, to appease the Jews because he feared them, he threw Paul in prison for two years. Then Felix was recalled and taken away because he was a lousy governor. And the emperor was Nero at the time and pulled the plug on Felix, probably told him, you're a lousy governor. He made the Jews mad. He was a brutal thug. Got rid of him, put a new governor in named Festus. And so that's where we are now. And so Festus is the new governor, comes from Rome. He's not familiar with Israel, not familiar with the Jews, not familiar with their religion, not familiar with the Old Testament, probably not even familiar with Paul, maybe not even familiar with Jesus, whom the scandal was about anyway. So Festus is naive, unseasoned, undiscerning, a rookie, a pagan, a Roman, invested in self Interest, not truly justice, although he was not as bad as Felix. So that's the governor. So the new governor arrives. His name is Festus. We know from history. We have some good history on this too, by the way, through uh, Josephus and others. And we know that Festus assumed the governor role there in about 59 A.D. and then died while in office about 62, the beginning of 62 A.D. So he only ruled for about two years. So he arrives... As the new governor in Caesarea, he's over Israel or Palestine, which means the jurisdiction over Jerusalem as well. And he's got a prisoner in his house there in the palace. He finds out it's a Jew. His name is Paul. What are you doing here? And then Festus is the new governor, and he wants things to go well in this land of the Jews. So he thinks, well, I better get in good with the leadership of the Jews. They're influential, and they've caused a lot of problems in the past. And they can get upset really quickly. And so he goes immediately to Jerusalem and meets the leadership of the Jews, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, 
And the first thing they talk about is trying to kill Paul. That's the first thing they bring up. After two years, Paul's been rotting in prison for two years, and all they have on their brain is, let's get rid of Paul, let's kill Paul. And so there's the new governor in town. Welcome, governor. Welcome to uh, Israel. We would like to have a trial against this Paul, this prisoner at your palace, at your house. And then Festus said, well, uh, actually, <laughs> the first thing they asked Festus was basically to kill him. He's a criminal worthy of death. And, and uh, Festus says, no, that's not justice. We don't do it in Rome that way. We need to have a trial. He needs to speak for himself. He needs to answer your charges. You need to bring evidence. We need to have a real trial. So that was good that he said that. But he didn't totally follow up on that. But he said, if you want to have a trial, it's got to be in Caesarea, where he is. And so sure enough, 10 days later, the Jews that hate Paul went up to Caesarea and Festus had his trial. He sat on the tribunal, the official judge's throne. And he let the Jews bring their charges as they circled around Paul like a bunch of ravenous wolves ready to pounce. And they were bringing very serious accusations against Paul, saying that he was worthy of the death penalty. Festus is listening in. He's not familiar with Jewish religion or law, so he is confused. And then he intervenes and says, well, Paul, you can go ahead and respond. And Paul said, well, these three charges, I didn't do any of them. I'm not guilty of sedition. I'm not guilty of sacrilege. I'm not guilty of insurrection or defiling the temple i didn't do any of it i'm not uh, guilty of undermining jewish law like they're trying to say and at the end of that courtroom session festus was confused all the more he didn't know what to do so in the middle of that because he was confused and didn't know how to rule and he, he knew that he clearly does say that he didn't have evidence they didn't have evidence to convict Paul of a crime. Festus, the judge, objectively concluded not only that, that even the crimes they're bringing up don't warrant imprisonment and don't warrant the death penalty. He shouldn't even be in jail. That's what he concluded. Nevertheless, instead of being a just judge and rendering and saying, you know what? He is not guilty. I'm throwing the case out. Paul, you may go free. Festus didn't do that. Again, he's he's a pagan. He's a compromised ruler, like we've seen time and time again. His, number one is himself. It's all about me, and that's why the passage says during this, Festus, wanting to please the Jews. Wanting to please the Jews, what? To manipulate the Jews, uh, fearing the Jews. The Jews were the ones that had Felix, his predecessor, fired. So I don't want to get fired. I don't want to upset things. So uh, I'm not going to let Paul go. I'm not going to say he's not guilty. I'm not going to say he's innocent. That'll get them riled up. I could lose my job. Wanting to please the Jews. So in light of that, he, at the end, Festus says, hey, hey, Paul, would you be willing now to go to trial down in Jerusalem, 60 miles away, and face a trial there with the Sanhedrin among the Jews there where the crime was committed, and I'll be the judge? And Paul said, absolutely not. We already did that. In effect, is what Paul said. I appeal. I am, I'm before you. You represent Caesar, the highest authority in the world. We don't need to go down a step to Jerusalem, to a kangaroo court. Already did that. No justice there. They have no evidence. They even said I was not guilty. The Pharisees in that trial said I was not guilty. Lysias, the Roman commander, said I was not guilty. Felix concluded I was not guilty. I am not going there. I appeal to Caesar. 
And then Festus, taken aback a little bit, again, not knowing what to do, conferred with his counselors, and they agreed that Paul, as a Roman citizen, had that right. And so he said, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. That was the verdict rendered, and now he's out of the jurisdiction, the authority, and the threat of the Jews who hate him in Jerusalem, and he's going to be sent off to Caesar. Caesar at that time was Nero. From 54 to 59, Nero was reigning as the new Caesar, and up to that point, he hadn't done anything crazy yet. It's about 60 A.D. and falling where Nero goes crazy, becomes a bloody, bloodthirsty murderer, especially of Christians. So Paul has confidence in God and also in the system and appeals to Caesar, and so Festus is going to let him go, which he should have done, but he doesn't do that. And so that's where we are now in Acts 25. Being that he appealed to Caesar, that should have been it. No more kangaroo courts here in Caesarea. No more kangaroo courts in Jerusalem or anywhere else. You are going to Caesar, the highest court in the land, to appeal your case as a Roman citizen. And once again, Festus compromises. Caves, cowers. And you have an example of a lack of justice once again, and that's where we are today. So today we're going to look at, actually, if you've got your outline there, 20, verses 23 to 27, Acts 25 where uh, Paul is on trial, and this time not before Felix, not before Festus, but another so-called authority, King Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II. And so the title is Paul's Trial Before Herod Agrippa II. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 27. I broke it down there once again in just the three principles to walk us through the narrative of the text. Technically... This unit goes from Acts 25, 13, all the way to the end of chapter 26. Because most of chapter 26 is Paul giving his testimony in the courtroom. And it's the longest testimony, I think, in the book of Acts given by Paul. It's the most detailed, it's the most specific, it's the most systematic, logical, chronicle, written in order. Almost like some a court reporter was there writing things down. Almost like Luke, his best friend, was there in the courtroom, listening, writing things. And that's very possible because Felix gave Paul the prisoner there in Caesarea freedom so that he his friends could come and go. And for two years, we don't know if Paul doing anything other than visiting his friends, and that's probably during the time, that two-year period, where from 57 to 59 A.D., where Luke was coming and visiting Paul and amassing all kinds of data to put together the Gospel of Luke and the whole book of Acts. And there were a lot of people present at this trial. Some of the trials that Paul's already been through were kind of private and secluded and uh, a limited audience. This one has a full-blown group of people from all kinds of different, different demographics who are present at this trial. And it could very well be in light of that because the prominent men of the town were invited and we're going to see that. Very well, it could be that some of Paul's friends were allowed to be there, maybe even Luke. That's speculation. But it would make sense that if Luke was there, that explains why there's so much detail in Acts 26 of what exactly Paul said. Even if Luke wasn't there, God's Holy Spirit enabled the Apostle Paul to give specific recall to Luke when he eventually wrote the story down. So let's go ahead and look at Paul's trial before Herod Agrippa and these three main points there. After all these trials that Paul has already been through, as you've been reading through the book of Acts, it's like, when, are you, when is he finally going to get some human, some justice from the, the human system of court and the judges and it's very disappointing all the compromise so far just about every authority figure has been a compromised authority figure from the 
Roman chiliarch to the governors to the high priests, all these people who have been trusted by God with authority at some level have been compromised out of self-interest, which is pertinent because that's what goes on today, doesn't it? All the time. Sadly, and that's because of humans and their sin. But God overrides that in his grace. God overrides the injustice of humans in his sovereignty. God overrides that on behalf of his children that he loves. So that's the good news, right? That's Romans 8.28. Even though you can have the worst compromiser of an authority, Romans 8.28 is still true that God works all things together for good. For him and his purposes, but also for his children that he loves. So in the end, Christians don't have a right to complain about a compromised system, wrong decision, bad decision, or whatever. I mean, ultimately, we don't. We do, but we don't. Oh, that judge, he was no fair. Oh, that referee, he was a lousy. That's why we lost. That is the lamest excuse in sports. Blame it on the referee. But anyway, you know what? When it comes to the justice of God, can override that, and he does. All for his good and also for our good. And so Paul isn't going to get any justice, yet God still accomplishes his plan through Paul because God told Paul already previously, I am sending you to Rome. So God's going to get Paul to Rome one way or another. And then Paul himself years earlier said, I want to go to Rome and preach for Jesus. So and God accomplished and honored that desire of his heart as well. So that's Romans 8, 28. It's amazing. God's plans cannot be thwarted even with this human injustice. So let's go ahead and look at these three points regarding this, the preliminary introduction to this trial Paul's going to have before Herod Agrippa, starting with uh, point number one, the delay, justice postponed, and I put there for the fourth time, justice delayed. I already delineated how he was pronounced not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not should have been let go. Paul should not be in chains right now. He shouldn't be subjected to another trial. And this is totally spontaneous. This is not planned. Felix didn't say, hey, Festus, figure this out, and if not, refer it to Herod. Refer it down lower to Herod, who has no authority over you. Never said that. Festus, when he came out, he wasn't even thinking of Herod. This is totally spontaneous. Festus is minding his own business at his palace there in Caesarea, and Herod invites himself to the palace. Hey, my great-grandpa built this joint. I'm coming in. King Herod built that place where Festus was living. And he just springs it on him and comes to town, supposedly to honor Festus and congratulate him for being the new governor. And out of that arose another trial, unplanned. So justice delayed one more time. Verse 13. Now, when several days had elapsed, this was several days had elapsed after Paul said, uh, I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus said, to Caesar, you shall go. So they should have been making preparations. Uh, it wasn't a very long period of time, but it was several days. So it could have been a, maybe a couple weeks at most. Paul's thinking, okay, I'm going to Rome. When no, you're going to be subjected to another trial. So now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus, the new governor. And that's why they came to town. So King Agrippa, King Agrippa, also known as King Agrippa II. Boy, the Herods, they are very confusing. And there's five or six of them in the New Testament alone. And they've got so much uh, incestuous relationships, it's hard to keep track of who's who. 
he was the sister, daughter, and second cousin of his wife who was married five times. And she was, anyway, that's literally, it's, it's a mess. But just so you know who the, the, just a little bit about King Agrippa and who he was. So there was a dynasty of the Herods. Uh, the most famous, of course, was King Herod. And this was the great grandpa of our King Agrippa in this text. This is King Agrippa II, so you could put a number two after his name. His dad was King Agrippa I. He's in the Bible, too. He's in Acts chapter 12. We already saw him, King Agrippa I, Acts chapter 12. King Agrippa I um, 30, ruled from 37 A.D. to 44 A.D. And Acts 12 records how he arrested the apostle James, the brother of John. Why? Because he was a Christian. Arrested him for being a Christian. And chopped his head off with a sword. Cold-blooded murder. That made the unbelieving Jews so excited. The Sanhedrin, they were so thrilled about that. They were given Herod Agrippa kudos. So they thought, oh, hey, I'll do it again. This time I'll get their other. I'm going to arrest Peter. And he did arrest Peter. And he went on to arrest all the apostles, arrest Peter, and chop their heads off. And then God intervened supernaturally and set Peter free. Shortly thereafter, Herod Agrippa I had a part, a celebration, a national holiday for himself. National, we're going to celebrate a national holiday, and it's called King Agrippa the First Day. And he dressed in all of his regalia and went out to the city and spent all this money, all the pomp and circumstance, and the whole city was ooing and aahing of, oh, how great and wonderful is King Agrippa. He is amazing. Oh, he must be a god and not a man. And Herod Agrippa was just eating that up, lapping it up, and just being filled with pride, and God killed him on the spot. Acts chapter 12. And we know from history that that happened in 44 AD. The book of Acts is historical because it's got so many very specific landmarks of dates and chronology, and this is one of them. There's nobody that doubts that Herod Agrippa existed and that he ruled when he did, and also that he died in 44 AD. Acts chapter 12 records that. Well, he had a son, and his, his name is Herod Agrippa II, and so he's our king here today that we're going to look at but just uh going back to great grandpa the herod started with herod the great also herod the king matthew 2 calls him herod the king herod the king herod the king repeatedly uh, he wasn't a king over a very large empire i mean because he was under the jurisdiction of the roman empire so caesar really was king caesar was king of the entire known empire at the time herod was called king because he was allowed jurisdiction over Palestine and Israel. So he was kind of the king of the Jews. King of the Jews. And he was a vassal king. He wasn't like, he was a puppet king. Herod. As all the Herods were, because they were all like born, raised, educated in Rome, had an allegiance to Rome, even though they were half Jewish. They had some Jewish blood through the loins or the bloodline of the Edomites. And way back to Esau, brother of Jacob. So they did come from Isaac and Abraham. So there was some blood there that where they could say they were Jewish and they took on the Jewish religion. And that's Herod's case. So he was uh, kind of a mutt. He was Jewish partially in his blood, but also by profession and embracing uh, the Jewish religion. Yet at the same time, politically, he was totally uh, allied with Rome and the Roman Empire because they're the ones that gave him all his authority and power and put him in that little vassal puppet role as a so-called king king of the jews king of the jews and that's what they call him he was king of the jews and that's what he thought that's why he was so jealous when he heard there was another king of the jews has been born at bethlehem and he got threatened and that's why herod 
had all the babies, all the baby boys, two years and under, in the environs, surrounding environs of Jerusalem, slaughtered and murdered. That was King Herod, killing babies, slaughtering them. Had at least ten wives, killed several of them in cold blood. Killed his own sons who threatened the throne in cold blood. This guy was vicious. That was grandpa, great-grandpa. And he rebuilt the temple. He built a palace and a massive uh, Greco-Roman auditorium at Caesarea that still exists to this day, 2,000 years later. You can go visit it. That was Herod the Great. Water aqueducts all over the place. He was the master architect. Incredibly influential. Highly respected. Greatly feared. Herod the Great. So then he died the same year Jesus was born, we think, 4 B.C. And then after Herod the Great, then there was Herod Archelaus. Matthew 2.22 refers to him. He ruled only two years from 4 B.C. to uh, 86. No, yeah, several years, 86. So Herod Archelaus was the one where Joseph and Mary fled, hiding from Herod the Great. And then they thought, maybe we can go back to Bethlehem, Jerusalem now that King Herod is dead. And they found out, no, his son has replaced him, and he's just as vicious and wicked. And so Joseph, led by an angel, oh, don't go there. Go to Galilee. And so that's why Jesus ended up going to Nazareth and growing up there out of fear for the next Herod, Herod Archelaus. And he's also mentioned in Scripture. Then years go by. Jesus grows up. He's an adult. He has his public ministry. He's 30 years old when he begins his ministry. And he's confronted with another Herod who's ruling there in Palestine. And that was Herod Antipas, who ruled A.D. 6 to A.D. 39. So this was the Herod who ruled when Jesus was doing his ministry. This was the Herod that ruled during the time of John the Baptist doing his preaching. He was as immoral as could be. He was as ruthless and vicious as could be. He was incestuous just like all of his other predecessors and everybody in his family. Herod Antipas. He was also, the scriptures call him Herod the Tetrarch. He was responsible for having John the Baptist arrested and thrown in prison. Why? Because John the Baptist pointed out that he was an adulterer and it was a disgrace. And Herod called himself a Jew and an overseer of the Jewish religion, the temple, and the holiest of things, and he was not honoring marriage. And John the Baptist pointed that out as a prophet of God with his life, and enraged and embarrassed and shamed, Herod threw him in prison. And not only that, John the Baptist had his head chopped off and put literally on a silver platter. That was Herod Antipas. Jesus heard of this and was grieved that John the Baptist, his predecessor, had been ruthlessly beheaded and murdered by this vicious tyrant, Herod Antipas. Jesus wanted nothing to do with Herod Antipas. Didn't want to see him, didn't want to be in his presence, didn't want to talk to him. So in the midst of his ministry, some messengers came from Herod to Jesus, inquiring and asking him a question. All Jesus said was, you tell that fox, that's what he called him, that I, the Son of Man, I do miracles. I heal the lame. I give sight to the blind. That's all he said. You tell that fox. Jesus would not interact with Herod Antipas again until it was time where he was on trial with Pilate. And Pilate was just fit to be tied. Pilate heard uh, the testimony of the Jews against Jesus. And he's like, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Three times. Pilate, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Nevertheless, the Jews crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate says, oh, wait a minute, I got an idea. He's from the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. I'm going to send him there. So he did. Trying to wash his hands of guilt. 
And so Jesus finally is is in the presence of this wicked Herod Antipas. And it said that Herod, he, he was gleeful as could be and giddy. Oh, yeah, I've got the magic man here. I want to see a trick. Show me a trick. Like a dog, he's throwing a bone. Do me a sign. Do me a miracle. Are you the king of the Jews? And scripture says, Jesus answered him not a word. What is that? That's judgment. That is the judgment of God. Sometimes God judges in different ways. Sometimes there's direct intervention when he judges, like he when he killed Herod Agrippa the first in Acts 12. Literally, instantaneously on the spot, killed him with worms. So sometimes, sometimes God's judgment is supernatural and direct intervention. Sometimes it's providential in the way it happens. He uses the circumstances of life to judge. Natural consequences, they're called. That can also be judgment from God. And then there are times where God judges by just simply taking his hands off and he doesn't intervene. He doesn't respond. Silence. Like when he told his parables out of judgment, he wouldn't give the interpretation of the parable to those he was judging. He gave the interpretation only to his followers. And so this is an act of judgment on Jesus's part when it says he answered him not a word. So that was Herod Antipas. Uh, then there was Herod Philip. He's mentioned in Luke 3. I mean, there's so many of them. And then you got Herod Agrippa the first. He's mentioned in Acts 12. And now we're off to Herod Agrippa the second, who was the great grandson of Herod the Great. And just so you know, so here it is, 59 AD. Herod Agrippa uh, gets involved. Herod Agrippa, by the way, and this is interesting, in A.D. 48, we know from history, Josephus and others, very detailed, very specific, the antiquities and, and other things that Josephus wrote, in A.D. 48. So this is 11 years ago, 11 years before this incident, Herod Agrippa II was given authority by Claudius the emperor in many respects, and one of those that is very important is he made Agrippa II, right here, the superintendent of the Jewish temple. Wow. So for 11 years, he has been wielding the power and the authority over the temple. Now, that was one of the accusations brought against Paul by these Jews. It was false that he's desecrated the temple and he also brought somebody unclean into the temple. So this intersects with something that Herod Agrippa might be interested in. And so Claudius made Agrippa superintendent over the temple. Not only that, he made him manager over the treasury of the Jewish temple in 48 AD. For 11 years, he has been responsible handling, managing, collecting, stealing the money from the temple. That's amazing. Not only that, he was given the authority over the temple, over the treasury of the temple, and also the right to appoint, hire and fire, high priests in Jerusalem. The high priest, that was the, the man who ran the show with respect to uh, the temple there, and even the authority over the Sanhedrin. And so this guy, for 11 years, Herod Agrippa, was hiring and firing different high priests in Jerusalem spontaneously, all to serve his purpose. And the Jews of that day, they resented him for that. Because it was all self-serving. And every high priest that was ruling knew, oh, I could, I could be pulled out any day and supplanted at the whim and the caprice of Herod Agrippa, the fickle, vicious, unjust ruler, so-called king in Israel. And then finally, they gave him the authority 
over the high priestly garments that would be given to the high priest. This is amazing. So that's important background to know and, and why it is so important that he's in this trial listening. Oh, wait, this Apostle Paul, who used to be in the Sanhedrin, studied under Gamaliel, uh, being, then became a Christian of that Jesus. Yes, that Jesus, the Jesus fellow, the Jesus, the Nazarene that my great grandfather uh, was involved with. And he claimed to be a Jew of the Messiah of the Old Testament. And here, Herod Agrippa was a master, supposedly, of the Jewish religion. A scholar. Paul even says that in his testimony. And we're going to see that next week. Uh, and he literally tells uh, Herod Agrippa, I am so glad to be in your presence to give my testimony today, uh, King Agrippa, because I know that you are a specialist in Jewish religion and Jewish law. Finally, somebody who knows the nuances of the charges. So Paul's a wee bit optimistic also because supposedly Agrippa is interested in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul thinks here's a great evangelistic opportunity. I can I can tell Agrippa about Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that he claims to believe in. No doubt Herod Agrippa knows Psalm 22 that my hands were pierced and my feet were pierced, said the Messiah a thousand years before his death. No doubt that Herod would know Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would come and die on behalf of sinners that they might be justified and rise again from the dead. It's all right there, Isaiah 53. So Paul's optimistic at the beginning of his testimony. So anyway, uh, sadly, Herod was not a just ruler or judge, and we're going to see that. And then we know that later on, 20, uh, 11 years later, he ends up dying. Uh, when the Jew, Romans go to war with Jews in Jerusalem, Herod turns his back on the Jews who are supposed to be his people, whom he's supposed to be the steward of and defending, and he throws in with the Romans against the Jews. He becomes a full-fledged traitor, which is not surprising in light of his character and his history. And by the way, Herod Agrippa, is he's got two sisters. They're named Bernice and Drusilla. Now, you remember Drusilla because Drusilla was in the chapter 24. Drusilla was married to Felix the governor, and Agrippa, his sister, is Drusilla. So Felix the governor is the brother-in-law of Herod, uh, King Agrippa. This is his brother-in-law by marriage. Drusilla, his sister. He has another sister. Her name is Bernice, his sister. Not only his sister, he married his sister. He was incestuous with his sister. Bernice, Bernice, we know from history, she had at least five or six men in her life. Husbands and everything else. Consorts. But in this case, she is with King Agrippa, and she's very influential. She also knows the Jewish religion. She's familiar with it. She's an authoritative person. She has great sway in King Agrippa's life, whatever he does. How do we know that? Because this repeated phrase in the next two chapters is King Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. We're going to keep hearing that. Agrippa and Bernice. Luke is emphasizing something there. The influence that Bernice has, and she is a very immoral ungodly, wicked woman. And yet her and Agrippa, they're one. So anyway, that's a lot of background about Agrippa, but I think it really helps uh, fill in some of the details here. So let's go ahead and look. Moving on. Uh, so justice is delayed one more time. Then point number two, the deliberations. Festus gives a summary so Festus meets King Agrippa. King Agrippa, maybe in Bernice, they brought their entourage and maybe some gifts and pleasantries and welcome, good to have you. And 
Here are these rulers spending time together. And they have any they could talk about all kinds of things, and the thing that's just overwhelming, preoccupying Festus's thoughts, probably weighing down on his conscience is this Paul guy in prison. I can't get what do I do with this guy? What do I do with this guy? He's got the weight of his world on his shoulders in terms of responsibility, and the only thing he can think about, he is myopic, he's uh, one track mind, it's this Paul guy. What do I do with him? It's kind of interesting how in light of all the duties that he has, he can only think about one thing. What do I do with this Paul guy? This Paul guy who, from all, what we know from history, there is one historical description of him. Could be reliable. It's confirmed by some of the New Testament passages. He, he wasn't the biggest threat uh, or overwhelming presence when you saw him personally. As a matter of fact, the, the Corinthians mocked Paul and what he looked like. He is not persuasive. You're not like Apollos. You're, he's kind of wimpy. You're right. You're right, tough Paul, but you look like a wimp. And you sound that way in person. That's what the Corinthians were accusing him of. And then the historical reference to him is that he was he was kind of a short guy. And he was balding. And he had a big nose. And he had beetles for eyebrows. And he was aging. And he'd been through the gauntlet up to this point. Who knows? He's probably limping around with all those broken bones. And he's in chains. And he's in a prisoner's robe. That's what Paul looks like. And yet, Festus is just overwhelmed with what do I do with this? It's like he fears Paul, which is a great testimony that he is God's man. He is God. It's kind of like uh, Pontius Pilate. Remember Pontius Pilate didn't know what to do with Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? And wow, I... I you're not guilty. You are innocent, innocent, innocent. Oh, I don't know what to do. And then his wife had a dream. Pilate's wife had a dream from God Almighty. Be careful with this man. And that just hounded Pilate's conscience, trying to publicly, okay, I am clean. No, you're not. And so no doubt this is this case is weighing down on Festus. So let's look at it, 14 through 22. So while they're spending many days together, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. Or you could read this another way. There is a man rotting in prison for the last two years in my house, in my palace, left here by your brother-in-law. Kind of interesting. There's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And verse 15, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest... The chief, you know, the chief priest, the guys that you appoint, you're Agrippa, you are responsible for the chief priests. Those guys. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews. Who run the temple, you know, the temple where where you have jurisdiction. Chief priests and the elders, the Jews, the Jews, you know, the Jews, you claim to be a Jew. Agrippa, your your wife, your sister, your adulteress, your mistress, she's a Jew. I'm not Jewish, I'm a Roman. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against Paul, who claims he's a Jew, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him, asking for a sentence of death against him. I just meet these people and they're saying, you need to kill that guy that's in your prison. There hasn't even been a trial. 
Verse 16, I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans, we believe in law here, to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Apparently, Festus didn't realize that that had already been done. Paul already met his accusers face to face. And there was a trial. And the Pharisee said he is not guilty. And Felix basically said there is nothing here worthy of death. Verse 17, so after they had assembled here, I did not delay. And that's true. Uh, Festus did not delay things and draw them out and procrastinate like Felix did. Uh, I didn't delay uh, expeditious justice. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought before me. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him. Not of such crimes as I was expecting. They're saying he deserves the death penalty. And I thought it's got to be something serious. It's got to be a murderer or evidence that he's trying to overthrow Rome or something like that capital crime but there weren't any verse 19 but they simply had some they simply had some points of disagreement with them about their own religion it was just about theology and it had nothing to do with rome and roman law and my authority my jurisdiction and nothing that warranted the death penalty it was about theology well what theology well we've already it's been repeated like two or three times already what what theology was the issue well that he defiled the temple with a gentile and that he blasphemed the temple and he also undermined and didn't believe truly in the Mosaic law. And that he was riling up Jews all over uh, the empire to create a tumult. But never in those testimonies was it shared in the book of Acts for us that at the heart of the theological debate or disagreement was over this man named Jesus. And that's the main point that Festus brings up here. All the while, Paul has been talking first and foremost about Jesus when he was on trial. Even if it wasn't recorded by Luke, that's what he was talking about. That's what made them so angry. So when he, we already talked about this a little bit, he did keep saying, I am on trial because of the resurrection. I'm on trial because of the resurrection. I'm on trial. He says that three times, three tests. I'm on trial. What resurrection? That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that from right here because Festus tells him, here's the issue. It was all about religion, theology. By the way, I'm not Jewish. I don't know this stuff, Herod, but you do. You're a theological expert on Judaism. But I do know one thing. It was about their own religion and specifically a dead man. Verse 19. This is the key to the whole passage. A dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. That was the point of contention. Why is Paul on trial? Because he believed in Jesus. Why was why did they hate his guts? Because he loved Jesus. He served Jesus. He claimed Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the savior of the world. They couldn't handle that. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. They despise that. That's what it's all about. Jesus. This is totally consistent with the Apostle Paul and his ministry from the time he was called in Acts chapter nine until his last breath on earth before he got his head cut off. Paul was single minded about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what he did. That's what he preached everywhere he went. Kind of like if you remember in Acts chapter eight, when Philip witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's a beautiful phrase, and it says that he preached Jesus to him. What a great summary statement. What did he do? Talk philosophy Talk worldly wisdom, ideologies of the world, politics of the day. No, he preached Jesus to him. Divine revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul did everywhere he went. That was the issue. So, and Festus got the point. It's this Jesus guy that infuriates people for some reason when his name comes up. We see that today, don't we? Talk to somebody about Jesus, boy, they just get real 
just instantaneously can they can turn red veins popping out of their face start salivating spitting when they're talking get all riled up get uncomfortable they sit up hair on the back of their neck just the name jesus personal conversation some of our evangelists going out on the weekends fridays and saturdays locally here telling their stories of interactions they have and some of them are just like that. Some people are, you know, courteous and nice. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, that's great. Super. Thanks for the free track. That's wonderful for you. Fantastic. Oh, that's great. World peace. Kumbaya. Great. I got to go. So that's a lot of people. But not everybody's like that. So I've been hearing some stories where people have been, they just stop in their track and get angry because they said, Jesus, I'm a Christian. And I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I've got some good news about Jesus. It's not good news. They don't want to hear it. They get angry. I don't want your tracks. I don't want your stupid tracks. I don't want your blankety-blank tracks. Here, here's your track. In your face. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? We're called not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Jesus said, the world hates me. John chapter 7, Jesus said, the world hates me. And then Jesus promised his disciples, oh, let me tell you, no, uh, the world is going to hate you too. The world is going to hate you too. The world, the unbelieving world, the sinful world, the world deceived by Satan, they will hate you too. And they will act accordingly. They will spit in your face. They want nothing to do with you. They will get angry. Sometimes they'll even be violent with you. But you need to trust God throughout it all. Trust in the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about what you need to say. He's going to, he's going to minister to you in that very spontaneous moment and tell you what to say. And he'll be your supernatural peace even in the face of death as a Christian. That's the promise of God. And that's what he does. And that's what he's been doing for Paul. And Paul was all about Jesus. And so there it is. Verse 19. This Jesus that Paul was talking about said he was alive back from the dead. I mean, how fearful that must have been for the, the high priest and the Jewish Sanhedrin. They killed that guy. So they thought he was a troublemaker. He was a rabble rouser. He riled up the crowds of Jerusalem by the tens of thousands. He was stealing their thunder. They were jealous of him. That's why they tried to snuff him out. We killed that Jesus. And Paul keeps saying he's back from the dead. How fearful that must be. So it was just another threat to them in every every conceivable way. This Paul and yet Paul, like in Acts chapter or uh, First Corinthians one, where he said, I, "I just preached Jesus, not the wisdom of the world." And then I love the one at the end of Galatians six, where he said, "I think it's six fourteen." Uh, may it never be that I should pre- preach, but it, just Christ, the cross of Christ is all that I'm known for. One thing, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. The irony here, they despise Paul to the point that they want to murder him and kill him. And yet what is heart, What is Paul's heart for these Jews that hate his guts? The the high priest, Ananias, who wants him dead. The Sanhedrin, especially the Sadducees who want him dead. That's Their attitude is, they hate Paul, they hate his guts, they despise him, they want him dead. And all the while, Paul's heart for these Jews is very clearly stated in Romans 10, verse 1, and Romans 9, verse 1. He loves them. He, he, and he desires their salvation. And he even says, if it were possible that I would be condemned to death for eternity, that they might be saved. That's the greatest love of all. That That is supernatural love. That is unthinkable. It's like, wow, can I say that about anybody? My heart's desire before God is that you would eternally condemn me to death so that so-and-so might be saved instead. That was Paul's heart for his brethren 
the Jews, even the ones that wanted to kill him. These Jews. And here's this totally immoral, bankrupt, you know, Christians get riled up sometimes against this and that, against alcohol and drunkenness and uh, homosexuality and sexual immorality and let's go boycott Disney and all that other stuff. And they're unclean and let's not have anything to do with them. And Well, you couldn't find anybody more compromised, dirty, immoral, sick, evil than Herod Agrippa. And that's not Paul's attitude towards him. You disgusting, compromised, vile thing. Get out of my presence. Don't you know that I am an apostle? I am made of marble. I was select by Jesus Christ, the Holy. He didn't do that. That's not his attitude. He starts out, he's gonna, you're gonna see he has nothing but total respect for the position. Respect for the position. Then he just respects him as somebody who's made in the image of God. And every human being who's made in the image of God, get this, is a candidate for salvation. And Paul really doesn't care. He knows about all the immoral compromise. He's not interested. It's a beautiful thing. We're going to see it in Acts 26. He's just going to, I got one thing in mind. Yeah, I want to tell him I'm not guilty and I'll give him some details. But I want this Herod to get the gospel and be saved. That's the overriding desire and motive that Paul has in his testimony in Acts 26. We're going to see it. It's beautiful. So he has a love for sinful humanity. Imagine that. Supernatural. Christ-like love for sinful humanity kind of sounds like God, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. Really what that means is God so loved the world that he created that is in utter rebellion against him as the creator. Nevertheless, he loves his creation and wants to go down and provide a savior that they might be saved. While we were yet enemies of God, he loved us through Christ said Paul in Rome. Isn't that awesome? He first loved us before we loved him. And that's the heart of Paul. And that's what this whole Jesus thing is about. And that's why it's so ironic. Uh, verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate such matters. So uh, he's telling Herod this. Festus, I, I am, I'm, at least he's honest. I am at a total loss how to investigate such matters, not a theologian. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters, but when Paul appealed uh, to be held in custody for the emperors, he appealed to Caesar, Herod, and you know you know how that goes. You grew up Rome in Rome, and you know Roman education, so you're familiar with all that. So I legitimately ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Verse 22. So Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa is just absolutely fascinated by this. Wow, really? Paul, huh? Man, I'd like to meet this guy. I want to I wanna hear what he has to say. Kind of like his great-grandpa. I want to see Jesus. I want a miracle. I want to see the living genie. Verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus said, you shall hear him. So he's bypassing, undermining justice according to the law. He's not supposed to go to another trial. He's supposed to go to Rome. Nevertheless, they're going to have this illegitimate trial. So he summarizes the deliberations of everything that happened regarding this case and gives it by way of summary to Agrippa. And then point number three, after the delay and the deliberations, is finally the dilemma. The dilemma. He's hinted at his dilemma. Festus has a dilemma. He has a problem on his hands. Uh, Paul appealed to Caesar. Festus said, you can go to Caesar. That's legit. That's legal. We're going to send you to Caesar. Problem, governor in Caesarea over in Palestine. You can't be sending prisoners for a trial to Caesar himself 
unless there is in writing what the crime is that's to be investigated. And that there is suspicion that they are indeed guilty, validated by objective evidence. Can't do it. Any governor, is gonna, if they're going to send a case to Caesar as judge and there's no case, no writing, no formality, no charges, that is a waste of the emperor's time. And Nero doesn't want anybody wasting his time. And we've seen that in history. So Festus has reason to be fearful. Well, I've committed myself to something and, wow, now I've got to get out of it. I don't have anything to write to Caesar about Paul. So, Agrippa, you've got to help me out here. That's his dilemma. Festus has no charges. Uh, verse 23, actually, he says he doesn't have any charges, but he has charges. And we're going to see that. Verse 23, so on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice, there it is again, Agrippa and Bernice, Agrippa and Bernice. With, get this, amid great pomp, fantasia, fantasy, 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 great fanfare and frills and pomp and circumstance. It was all just one big fantasy as Herod was a great man in the figment of his own imagination. Man, they rolled out the red carpet and a half for this trial. It just went total overboard. Going into the coffers, spending the people's money, and they're having this huge ordeal of this trial with King Agrippa there as their guest, and this no-name, chained-up, innocent prisoner that few people need seem to know about, Paul. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, these are formal terms, by the way, with great pomp, and look at the entourage, entered the auditorium, so it's in a formal, wide-open setting, accompanied by the commanders. These are the Roman commanders. These are formal, ruling Roman soldiers, chiliarchs, along with maybe centurions and their soldiers, and the prominent men of the city, the city council. I mean, they've got a lot in the audience here, and they've spent a lot of money on this. Pomp and circumstance, sitting on his tribunal, which probably mean they were in full garb, which meant... Herod, he indeed was a king, and he did have a purple robe and ruled accordingly, as did Bernice with her beautiful, very expensive, probably purple robe. And then Festus himself also had his kingly attire that he wore, all the paraphernalia that went with it, including the crown on the head, scepter, full-blown. They couldn't meet in a little courtroom. They had to do it in the auditorium because there were so many people invited. Could very well be. That's why I said Luke was there. We don't know. Horns blowing, horses prancing, soldiers at arms, lots of color, bunch of noise, press release out. What's going on? Huge trial. Then after all of that gets settled in at the command of Festus, when he thinks everything's ready, Paul was brought in verse 24 festus said to king agrippa or festus said king agrippa so that now they're in the formal setting king agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with it could be i don't know dozens and dozens and dozens of people and dignitaries and now he goes public public why are we here today he fesses up 
He admits it. Festus said to King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me. Paul's probably standing there in chains. I already described what he looked like. Absolute, total, non-threat. Actually, probably looked helpless. Somebody to feel sorry for. Yet, when Paul starts speaking, he's the biggest man in the room. <laughs> the, the courage and the power that he speaks with just overwhelms everybody else in the room through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. All you gentlemen present with us, you see this man about you. All the people of the Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem here, loudly declaring, loudly, so they were passionate, yelling at Festus, loudly declaring in his face uh, that he ought to be, that he ought to live no longer. He should be condemned to the death. Verse 25, and here, here's the big confession and the big dilemma, verse 25. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. There it is. He is innocent. He is not guilty. Again. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, Caesar, I decided to send him. Verse 26, yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Oops, I can't send him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. (laughs) He's trying to save his hide. It's unbelievable. But he admits it. Now, He's partially true, but he also says a little bit of a lie. Actually, it's a significant lie. In verse 26, he says, yet I have nothing definite to write about him. That actually is not true. What he's saying is, I have no charges to write, yet he's been presented with definitive charges, at least three of them. And we've already delineated those. And those keep getting repeated. Sedition, sacrilege. There were three of them. Defiling the temple. Sedition against Rome and against the Jews and their religion. So those are the three crimes. It's been repeated again and again. So he did have charges. You know what he didn't have? What he did not have? Eyewitnesses. There were none. And he couldn't. He knew he couldn't move forward. There's no evidence. We have zero. We have charges, but we don't have evidence. He doesn't say that. He's twisting the truth. He's not being a man of integrity. So you got to help me out here, Grippa. you got to get me out of a bind. That's what Pilate tried to do with Herod. Verse 27, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner to Caesar, not to indicate also the charges against him. I can't do that. Please save me from this embarrassment. And then on chapter 26, shouldn't be a break in your English Bible because it just continues. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretches out his hand. And we don't know what that gesture meant. It could be showing respect to uh, Herod. Or Festus, thank you. Thank you, Herod. Could be that he was in preaching mode. But somebody's standing out their hand. That's somebody who has confidence. And it's not in himself. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God and the promise of Jesus that when the moment comes, I will tell you what to say. And what he says is incredibly powerful. And God used it mightily. And to hear what Paul has to say, we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day and, again, the privilege to study your word together. And thank you for preserving true history through faithful servants like Luke and others and saints through through history have given their lives. And in your providence, your Holy Spirit has preserved your word. Thank you that we can look at our Bibles today and, and know it's totally reliable, totally without error, and, and totally 
authoritative and it reveals what you think and what you know. And thank you for the lessons that we can learn from even this testimony today, that you're totally sovereign, you're in control of all things. You take bad things and work them out for your good and also for our good and even for our blessing. God, may we hang on to that great truth today and throughout this week in light of things we will be confronted by, some of which we weren't even aware of that could try to take us down. So we just cling to you in faith. Thank you for the reminder that we are, as Christians, called to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you for the empowering Holy Spirit that ensures that is a possibility. And we commit all this to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.